Let's just hear from the word of the Lord. This is Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Um, Well, as we see in the, the opening scene of this passage, we've seen it a few times now in the book of Acts. There's groups of people, whereas Paul and the apostles preach the gospel, there's groups of people that do not like the preaching of the gospel. That's always been the case. That will always be the case. What's unique sometimes, not unique in terms of time or in terms of place, but unique for us at least, in Acts, there's multiple times where people are so upset with the preaching of the gospel. They're so upset with the gospel message that, that that anger really overflows to where things become dangerous for Paul and the apostles. So multiple times now, there have been groups that have wanted to stone Paul or stone Barnabas, where they pick up big rocks and throw them at people until, until that person is dead. Well, well, finally, these groups kind of catch up with Paul. We're told where they're from here at the beginning of our passage. They're, they're Jews from Antioch and Iconium. These are two places Paul had been previously. Look back at chapter 13, verse 45. These are the Jews from Antioch, chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now go down to, go down to verse 50 of chapter 13. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. So that's one group. They were really upset with Paul in Iconium. Paul heads out. Well, they ended up following Paul. Look back now at chapter 14, verse 5. These are the Jews from Iconium. Say They were from Antioch. These are the Jews from Iconium. Chapter 14, verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled. So these groups had been upset with Paul and Barnabas about preaching the gospel. They finally catch up. They converge on Paul and they end up stoning him. So surrounding him, throwing these big rocks at him until they think he's dead is what we're told here in this passage. Middle of verse 19, they stone Paul and drags him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And we can pause there. This is sort of a helpful parable for the way that maybe before you were a Christian, maybe the way that you looked to other people. So again, some of us, we don't remember when we first trusted in Christ. It happened a long time ago. We grew up kind of believing all along the way, at least as as long as we can remember. But then some of us remember being non-Christians and remember the Lord saving us out of that, bringing us to, uh, to faith in Christ. Well, there were probably a lot of people, if you're in that second category, there's probably a lot of people that looked at you and you looked to them like Paul was, where it looked like you were dead and hopeless, right? And they should just move along because there's, there's not any hope that you're going to be saved. 
So I remember having people around me who probably would have thought, Scott is never going to come to the Lord. He is never going to be interested in the gospel. But praise the Lord, I had one friend who, even though to everybody else it looked like I was hopeless, would never come to the Lord. One friend thought, you know what? I think the Lord can save Scott. So he was faithful to preach the gospel year in and year out. And that's a good reminder to us, right? To continue sharing the gospel with people, no, no matter how dead they look to us. Paul looked dead, but we see here what happens. Even though he looks dead, God had preserved his life, and so he gets up. So all those crowds passed by, but then the believers surround him, and he gets up, and he walks on. And, and as, as had become his custom, once significant persecution arrives in an area, he moves on. Because remember, all Paul's interested in doing is preaching the gospel. So it's not so much that he's worried about his own life particularly. Oh, they're, they're going to kill me if I stay here. No, for Paul, it was more they're going to kill me if I stay here, and then I won't be able to preach the gospel. And there's all these non-believers that need to hear the gospel. So Paul moves on when there's that kind of significant persecution. So he and Barnabas, after he's stoned and he gets up, they move on to the city Derby, which was 60 miles or so to the, to the east. They move on there to preach the gospel. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city— and had made many disciples, they returned. So this is a a quick note. It's a quick description of what happens when they go to Derby. but we should notice a few things. First of all, so we're told they had made many disciples. And that word just means a follower of Christ, somebody who's committed to Jesus, a disciple. It's a Christian, synonymous with a Christian. Now, now what is it that transforms someone from being a non-Christian into a Christian? Our passage tells us, When they had preached the gospel, then they get disciples. So so when the good news, that's that's all that word gospel means. It's a Greek word, euangelion. It means good news, good announcement. So when that good news is preached about Christ, which is just the fact that he's our only hope, he's the only way our sins can be paid for. So as humans, we're created by a good God. He's perfectly good and holy. He deserves our allegiance. He deserves our worship. But that's not what we've done. Humanity turned from the Lord, rebelled against him. All of us have done that. Every time we sin, we do that. Walk away from the Lord. Well, because of that, we deserve his wrath. We deserve punishment because of our sins. That's why he sent Christ, was to come to earth, fully God and fully man, live a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice on the cross for us, so that he could pay for our sins. He could bear under the wrath of God that we deserve And of course, part of that good news is that the way we access that, the way we become connected to Jesus, where the cross pays for our sins, isn't through trying hard or trying to become a better person or more virtuous. No, those things happen as a result of the gospel. But no, the way our sins are forgiven is we trust alone in Christ alone. It has nothing to do with us. Our efforts have no part in it. We're trusting in the one whose efforts were good enough to save us, who actually gives us righteousness in God's eyes. That's what Christ does and it's that message the message of the gospel that creates spiritual life in the spiritually dead person that's what we see in ezekiel chapter 37 it'd be an encouraging chapter to read this afternoon ezekiel 37 the vision of the dry bones where he tells this prophet hey preach to these dry bones there had been this battle there's all these bones laying there the flesh has decayed a long long time ago and so ezekiel preaches the word to these bones and then god uses the word to pull those bones together and puts flesh on them and creates an army there. It's a picture of what the preaching of the gospel does. The preaching of the gospel produces spiritual life. It's what we've seen all throughout the book of Acts. 
The gospel is proclaimed. The word sinks into people's hearts and it opens their eyes for their need for Christ. And then they come to Jesus. Their heart's been changed by the word. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. So if the church wants to see people become Christians, we need to preach the gospel. We need to do it individually, but then we also need to do it corporately as a body in our Sunday gatherings. In particular, the gospel should be made clear in the sermon, but also in the songs and in the prayers and in every other aspect of, of Sunday morning. But, but here's what we need to notice for the rest of our passage. Once Paul has these folks that are Christians, so once Paul has these folks who have become Christians, is Paul satisfied with that? At that point, does he say, okay, me and Barnabas, our work is done. These people, their sins have been forgiven. They're trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. So that's all that has to happen. So now our work is done. We should go on somewhere else, preach Christ that people could come to Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and, and that's it. And maybe there's nothing else that, that has to happen. And you might not know this, or, or you might know this, but that's the way a lot of churches and parachurch groups think about this. So all they're trying to do is see people say, yes, we'll trust in Christ. And then at that point, that ministry thinks, well, our job is done, right? These people have become Christians. So now we can move on, try to make other people Christians. That group is all set. There's nothing else that needs to happen there because they've trusted in Christ. And, uh, and, and we don't need to, to do anything else. But see, the Lord wants more than that. And we see it in the book of Acts. It, it's really interesting. When you look at Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, you see a clear progression it happens over and over and over again. It's actually what dictates where he goes on his missionary journeys. Because what you see is Paul goes out to an area where they don't have the gospel. He preaches it, makes Christians. And then what does he do? He gets back on a boat and he sails back to somewhere he has already been. And we might think, why are you doing that, Paul? Those people are already Christians. Aren't they all taken care of? Isn't that it? And Paul's answer is no, because that's the Lord's answer. No, he goes back where people have already become Christians, and then he gathers them together to encourage them in the word and to give them more teaching. So we can see this in multiple steps. So first, again, he preaches the gospel to non-Christians, so people become Christians. That's verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples. So the mission at Derby is at step one. You've got brand new Christians well, once he's got people who have become Christians, Paul, again, he gathers those people together to instruct them about Christ and the gospel and the Christian life. That's step two. We see that at the end of verse 21. So he and Barnabas, they travel back to some cities where they had already preached the gospel and people had become Christians. Look at the end of verse 21. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So these towns are at step two. People have become Christians. Paul's going back to encourage them in the gospel, to teach them. Well, then Paul moves from step two to step three. Look at verse 20, 21. Or I'm sorry, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So see, step three happens once the church has been taught for a certain period of time. And there's a, a certain group of men who are far enough into their discipleship that they're qualified to be leaders in this new church, what the New Testament calls elders. And, and once that happens, then Paul puts those leaders in place. He gives that local church structure in that way. So, so you can see the Lord isn't just interested in individual conversions to Christ. Like that's it. That's A to Z. Once somebody believes the gospel, 
then that's done. There's no more ministry that, that needs to happen. No, he's just as interested in, in setting up churches. And so that's, that's the context of our passage. The context of this passage is the local church of believers. We just see it in different phases as it moves along the, the trajectory. So, so now we're ready to kind of look at the, the meat of this passage. So when the local church of Christians comes together, what is it the members are supposed to gain from that? What are Christians supposed to gain by Christians coming together in local assemblies? In other words, what kind of things do you need from the local church? And our, our passage points out three main things, I think. There are others, but, but these are three main categories. So first, you need the church for spiritual strengthening as a Christian. Second, you need the church for accountability. And third, you need the church for the testimonies about God. So, so first, you need the church for spiritual strengthening. So again, once Paul and Barnabas see the conversions in Derby, they travel back to these cities, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. They gather together those new Christians and then look again at what they do. Verse 22, they are strengthening the souls of the disciples. So you need the church for spiritual strengthening. Now, now notice right off the bat, it's spiritual strengthening. So when we're told they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, in that context, the word soul, it's about the immaterial part of the person. So it's, it's not about their flesh and blood, right? The part that you can touch. It's, it's the immaterial. It's the soul part of us. It's the idea Jesus gets at in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So Paul and Barnabas, they, they aren't aiming to strengthen these Christians' bodies or, or any material aspect of their life. They're aiming to strengthen their souls. So just remember this. It's a good reminder. God has made no promise that you will be financially strong. He has made zero promise about that in Scripture, right? He's made no promise to you that you'll be physically strong. We get sick, right? And that doesn't defy any promise from God. He's made no promise about physical strength. He's made no promise that you'll be vocationally strong. You might have a job that you don't love, and you might have a job that you're not crazy about for, for the rest of your life. He's made, he's made no promise about that. But what God has promised to you is of infinitely greater value than these things. He promises you spiritual strength, much more valuable, much more significant. Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. That might be a helpful verse to write in the margin there next to this one in Acts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So the Christian's body, the Christian's material situation in life, it could be falling apart. That happens regularly. But our inner self, our soul is being renewed day by day. And, and this is what local churches are supposed to do. The church should provide spiritual strengthening the way that, that Paul does here. So, so what does this look like? What does it look like for a soul to be strong? It's kind of an ethereal, weird concept, right? What does that mean? Well, look at the next phrase in verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Okay, so that's what a strong soul is. A strong soul, spiritual strength is when you're holding on to Jesus tightly. That's the measure of spiritual strength. How tightly are we holding on to Christ? I had buddies in college who were rock climbers, which was always had a negative appeal to me. It wasn't even at a zero. It was like a negative seven. Although, love it that so many folks in this body find joy in climbing rocks. 
throw that in. Uh, but, but they would always be using this device, these things they would hold in their hands that would strengthen their individual fingers. So if we're watching a movie or if we're shooting the breeze, they've got these things and they're strengthening their fingers because they want to be able to hold on to the, the face of the rock. They're trying to make their grip stronger. Well, see, a, a strong soul, it, it's one that has a tight grip on Christ. And that's what we should be praying for as individual Christians. Give me a stronger grip on Christ, a tighter hold on my Savior. And we should be praying for, uh, for that for these, these gatherings. So on Sunday morning, that's a good thing to pray for. Lord, use our church gatherings in such a way that our grip on Jesus is tighter at 11.15 than it was at 9.20. That the Lord uses his word to, to tighten our grip on Christ. So, so that's what spiritual strength is, a tight grip on Christ. So how does that happen? What's the pathway? What's the means for the church to use to strengthen our grip on Christ? Well, the pathway is, is teaching. It's teaching. It's, it's using words to convey truths about the gospel of Christ. That's how soul strengthening happens. So, so the terms used in verse 21 and 22, they are talking terms. So you've got preaching and encouraging and saying. So Paul is opening his mouth and the words that are coming out, those are the means for strengthening the souls of these Christians. And this is no surprise. It's what we've seen all throughout the study of Acts. Bible teaching is central to the growth of the church. We see it in the very first Christian church. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The, the church that Paul and Barnabas end up at in our passage is the church in Antioch. And they were there early on in the days of that church. Back in Acts 11, listen to what Paul and Barnabas had done in that church. Acts 11, verse 23, Barnabas exhorted them. So he's taking the word to them. He's speaking the word to them. Chapter 11, verse 25, and for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas met with the church and taught. So that's what's happening there. The center of it is, is teaching, encouraging, giving words about Christ to believers, soul strengthening comes by way of teaching. But see, it's not just the sermon. No, when, when the churches in Acts sang songs together, they were being taught God's word by the lyrics of those songs. When they prayed, they were teaching one another God's word as they prayed for things that scripture told them to pray about. When they took the Lord's Supper, they were reminded of the words of Christ. The supper was being interpreted to them by God's word. Baptisms were the same thing. Miracles were the same thing. Yeah. Every activity of the church in Acts had a teaching component. So the, the pathway for strengthening the Christian soul is teaching. But, but what kind of teaching is it? You know, what should the content be? We read that passage from 2 Corinthians 4 a minute ago. Your outer nature is wasting away. Your inner nature is being renewed. Well, a few verses earlier in that, Paul tells us what it is that should be taught that will renew our soul, renew our inner nature. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim, there's another talking word, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So the kind of teaching that strengthens the soul is teaching that proclaims Christ. Teaching that holds out the Savior. And that's exactly what's supposed to happen inside of the church. The, the church is supposed to teach Jesus' word about his person and his work. The church is supposed to teach about the gospel of Christ. And the more we're taught about Jesus, the more tightly we will hold on to him. Just, just think about the reverse. When is it that you begin to loosen your grip on Christ? Isn't it when you start to forget about what he's done, 
or or maybe start to disbelieve disbelieve who he is. Well, what's the remedy to that? When when you forget how good a particular food is, what's the remedy? Will you eat that food? When you forget how much fun you have with another person, what's the remedy? You spend time with that person, right? So you know how we're reminded how good Jesus is? Stare at Jesus. That's the way to remedy that. Stare at Christ. Consider who the Bible says he is. Read about the promises he's made to you. Learn the commands that he's given to you. Your soul's grip on Christ will will be strengthened when you hear the word of Christ. And we need to have our grip tightened. To use the, the words of verse 22, we need to be encouraged to continue in the faith. And the reason we need that is because the world and the devil and your own sinful flesh are all conspiring to get you to loosen your grip on Christ. The world, the flesh, and the devil all want you to loosen your grip on Christ, to let him go. Paul reminds the, the church of this. Look at the second half of verse 22. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. So he reminds these Christians, hey, the path to heaven includes suffering. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So he's saying, hey, suffering will come if you're a Christian. It's just part of it, right? If you're walking on the path to heaven, don't forget who you're following. You're following Christ, who had a lot of suffering. So the same way that if you're driving down the road and you're following somebody else and they go over a lot of potholes, which never happens in Maine, right? They're going over a lot of potholes. Guess what? You're going to go over potholes too because you're following that person down the same path. Well, our Savior was one who didn't have a place to lay his head. His life was defined in many ways by suffering. So as we follow him, we're going to have suffering on that path too. Verse 22, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul was proof of this. So undoubtedly, he still had bruises on him. I mean, he was injured enough to where people thought, this guy is dead. It wasn't that long after that where he shows up in this city. So you wonder how many questions he had to answer about, you've probably done this if you've maybe been skiing and fell or something and you had a black eye and you go to work the next day. Every single person is going to ask you, hey, what happened? That would have been Paul here, right? He probably had an opportunity to tell all of these people what had, what had happened. So there right in front of them is this reminder that, oh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But, but see, what we focus on, and it makes sense, it's, it's just part of our limited flesh, but what we focus on is the first part, the through many tribulations. That's the part we focus on, and we just think, oh, Lord, why does it have to be this way? Why is suffering part of the Christian life? This is so hard. This is the worst. But see, the whole point is for us to understand the first part, but to really focus on the second part. That's why Paul says this. Focus on the, we must enter the kingdom of God part. So as you move through these tribulations, if you hold on to Jesus, you're that much closer to the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is reminding these these young Christians of. And on that day, it'll all be worth it. Remember that parable Jesus tells about the treasure that's buried in the field? So he discovers there's this really worthwhile treasure that's in a field. He doesn't own the field, but this guy goes and buys the field so that he will own the treasure that is in the field. He knows that treasure is a much greater fortune than the price for the field. That's what Paul is saying here. The suffering we'll have to endure through this life as Christians, it it will pale in comparison that price to what will be given when we get into the kingdom of God. 
But, but we only enter the kingdom of God if we're holding on to Christ in the midst of that suffering. And, and we need to be reminded of that, right? Jesus is worth holding on to even in the midst of suffering and persecution. So you've probably got all that. So hang on to all that. Conclusion drawn, at least up to this point. You've got to hold on to Jesus. It'll be worth it holding on to Jesus through this life in the midst of suffering and persecution. But here's something else we learn in the Bible. You need your church to remind you of that reality. You can't do it on your own. You need a church to remind you of that reality. I love this line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German Christian. He says it this way. He says, the Christ in my own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother. Isn't that so true? So true. Now, Christ is strong regardless, but the Christ, as you believe in him in your heart, your belief in Christ, it waxes and wanes, doesn't it? It's oftentimes weak. But when your brother or sister in Christ is reminding you of the truths of the gospel, isn't that more firm and secure than than your own belief when you preach it to yourself? Preach it to yourself, no doubt. But you need other brothers and sisters to preach the gospel to you also. You need the church. There's a TV show that was on years ago where one character is is talking about why he doesn't tip certain people. So if he's in a coffee shop, he he doesn't tip the person that's there. And the way he figures out whether to tip somebody for a job is whether he could do it himself. That's how he figures it out. This is what he says. He says, why tip someone for a job I'm capable of doing myself? I can deliver food. I can drive a taxi. I can and do cut my own hair. I did, however, tip my urologist because I am unable to pulverize my own kidney stones. (laughs) So listen, there's a limit on how much spiritual strengthening you can provide to yourself. There's a limit. There's a ceiling on that. You need the church. In fact, listen how the author of Hebrews connects gathering together with the church. Listen how he connects that to holding on to Jesus. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Here it is, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You need your church to remind you that Jesus is better than anything the world can take away from you. You can preach that to yourself often and you should and I should, But the truth is, it does something different for us when the church preaches that to us. You need the church to remind you Jesus is better than anything the world can take away from you. And Paul does that here for the churches in our passage. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So you need your church to remind you that Jesus is is better than anything else. You need the church for spiritual strengthening. But but you might think, well, wait, but I can get that in other places outside of the church, right? You know, I, I can hear about Christ and have my soul strengthened from a parachurch group or at a conference or in a seminary classroom. And, and that's definitely true. Praise God, undoubtedly. However, none of those is the main avenue by which the Christian is supposed to be strengthened. No, God's central plan for the Christian spiritual strengthening has always been the local church. And, and here's one thing that makes the church fundamentally different than any other group. The church provides accountability. That's what makes it different than any other group. Any other Christian group we can go to, the church provides accountability. Look again at the structure God puts in place in verse 23. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they, com- they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, so why does God want groups of Christians, what the New Testament calls churches, why does he want churches to have elders? Well, one reason we're going to get to in a second, and, and that bears on our passage, but, but just right off the bat, one reason the church needs elders is for direction. So undoubtedly, that's part of the reason that God is appointing elders in these churches. Churches need direction. What, one of the main tasks of, of the New Testament officer of elders is that elders lead the church. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Elders should rule well. That's why in Philippians 1 and Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, the New Testament uses the title overseer to talk about elders. Elders are, are those who are overseeing, that are supervising the direction of the church. I don't know how much you, you think about this. We try to remind ourselves about this pretty often, but God loves authority. Our God loves authority. So whenever you hear a message that's anti-authoritarian, just by its very nature, that authority is bad, that is not from the Lord. That's what Satan said to Adam and Eve when they tried to get them to turn away from God's authority, right? God loves authority. That's why he's baked so much authority into the structure of this world. So he puts parents in charge of kids. He puts governments in charge of citizens. He puts employers in charge of employees. He puts husbands in charge of families. And he puts elders in charge of churches. They provide the church with direction. And every organization needs direction. As Bud Cushman has told me that they used to say at the Brewer Fire Department, the only thing worse than no plan is two plans. Right? It's good. Organizations need direction. So churches need elders. God's given the church elders to lead the way forward. But see, that's not the only reason churches need elders or pastors or overseers. That's not the only reason Paul and Barnabas appoint elders here. The church also needs elders because the church needs accountability. And this is our second point this morning. You need the church for accountability. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Be subject to the elders. In other words, see yourself as under the authority of the elders that, that God has placed in the church. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. It's the same word that Paul says he's strengthening their souls. Same word here. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And see, this is part of the reason why Christians need to be a member of a local church. You, I, Christians, we need, we need the authority that God has given to other people to help lead us and counsel us and, and if need be, rebuke us. So, so you can listen to conference speakers and, and pick and choose what you're going to respond to. You can sit in a seminary classroom and decide what the professor says that, that you're going to respond to. But see, God knows we need one venue where there's actual authority and accountability, where we don't just get to opt in when we want to and then opt out when we want to. And he, he knows that because there'll be times when, when we don't see our sin clearly. There'll be times where the Bible is telling us to do something and, and we'll want to set aside the word because we just really don't want to do it. Now, a lot of times it just takes another Christian reminding us about what the word says, whether that person is a pastor or a fellow church member or just any other Christian, right? That happens all the time. Praise God, somebody tells you what the word says and, and you submit to it. But listen, there's also times when you still won't submit to that other Christian. 
there's times when you will need somebody who has been given authority by God over you to say, hey, this is what the word says. This is what the gospel says about this situation. There could even be a time when, when you're so far into unrepentant sin, you'll need the elders to lead the rest of the membership in the process of corrective church discipline. What Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 18 in, in order to wake you up. So, so Christians need elders and even elders need elders. So, so the command to obey your leaders, that command applies to me too. The only difference between me and the majority of the folks sitting in these chairs is you guys have three elders and I have two elders. But let me tell you, there have been multiple times where Scott Pinkham and Peter Small have had to sort of gently and sweetly rebuke me. Or there's a time where I have an idea that I think is great for the path of this church, and the two of them have to say, uh, that's probably not the best idea. So praise the Lord for multiple elders because you guys have been preserved from lots of bad ideas. So praise God for that. There's times where I have to go to the two of them for advice, and, and I just have already said in my head, whatever these two brothers tell me, they're my elders, whatever they tell me, I'm going to do it. And even if they're wrong, I'm, I'm still going to be pleasing the Lord because, because I'm trusting them. I'm trusting the authority God has put over me in my life. We all need elders. In fact, it's significant in, in the New Testament, elders are always spoken of in the plural. So anytime elders are being appointed, it's never he appointed an elder, like a solo guy in Derby or Antioch or wherever. No, it's, it's always multiple elders, a plurality. All Christians need local church elders. So by way of application, is, is this the way you look at the elders of your church? And in particular, don't, don't even think about specifics so much because obviously it can look lots of different ways. But, but do you just see the elders as having any unique authority over you? Do you see your elders as having a unique authority over you? Or in your eyes, are your elders on the same plane as the podcast preacher or in the exact same category as the Christian blogger or, or the parachurch leader? Well, the Bible's telling us don't, don't look at it that way. That kind of thinking can make no sense of the passage in Hebrews or 1 Peter or the fact that God appoints elders in his church for, for Christians. So you've had, you have elders for a reason. So trust God that he's given Grace Bible Church the elders he has on purpose and trust God that he's put you here in this church on purpose because he definitely intends for you to have elders. Now, now we don't want to get the wrong idea. No Christian's hope in any way, shape, or form, is in their local church elders. Look at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, so it's God who we're hoping in. It's the Lord in whom we have believed, right? We, we trust the elders' oversight and authority because we ultimately trust in the Lord. But, but just like God exercises authority over kids through their parents, he regularly exercises authority over Christians by, by way of their elders. So Paul and Barnabas, they appoint elders here because Christians need the church for accountability. But see, finally, you, you don't only need the church for spiritual strengthening and accountability. You also need the church for the testimonies. You need the church for the testimonies about God. So it's, it's crucial to hear the teaching of the word, but we also need to hear real life on the ground testimonies that what God says in his word is actually true and that God really is faithful. Look at the final scene in our passage, verse 26. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. 
So after Paul and Barnabas traveled through all these areas in Acts 13 and 14, and they preached the gospel, strengthened existing churches, appoint elders, after all that, they traveled back to the church that originally sent them out, the church in Antioch, and look again at what they do. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So they're recounting what they had seen the Lord do on this missionary journey, the people that he had saved, the Christians that he had grown up in the faith. And, and this is a significant part of the local church gathering. We give testimony about what we've seen the Lord do. And praise God, at this church, it's really out in front because we have this congregational prayer time every Sunday. So what we see Paul and Barnabas doing here, we get to do that. It's built into our service every Sunday morning where we get to testify to one another about the work that we've seen the Lord do recently. Praise God for that. And, and see, even there, there's an aspect that's, that's unique inside of a local church. So walking through this life, you're, you're gonna hear lots of testimonies about things, right? Whether it's God or something else, you'll hear testimonies on TV or on Facebook or from various books. But, but lots of folks doing the testifying, you don't know them. So, so you don't know if they're trustworthy, right? When it comes to testimonies about the Lord, you don't know oftentimes whether this person believes the one true gospel. You don't know if there's fruit in their life. It's, it's difficult to know if their testimony is true. But see, the church in Antioch, they knew Paul and Barnabas because they had been part of that local assembly. They were under the authority of that congregation. So the church didn't have to sift through their testimony to try to discern what's true, what's not true. No, these guys were trustworthy enough to interpret what had happened on the mission field. The church knew that. They knew Paul and Barnabas. And see, you know your fellow church members. You know they agree with you on the gospel. You, you see fruit in their life. And so throughout the week, but, but especially on Sunday mornings, you have the opportunity to hear testimonies about God's faithfulness from people you can have confidence in believe the one true gospel. Praise God for that. And, and God will use those testimonies to tighten your grip on Christ. And this is a good reminder. We should have a desire to, to share these kinds of testimonies during, uh, with the body during this time. Look at the middle of verse 27. They declared all that God had done with them. So see, they could have been satisfied to just say, oh, God did these things with us. Man, that was great. But no, they, they take this extra, extra step where they declare how God had been faithful, what he had done with us. So, so when God reminds you of part of the gospel during your week, when you need that reminder, when he gives you freedom from a particular sin throughout the week, when you're encouraged by something the Lord does, he doesn't just do that solely for your encouragement. He does it for that. But then he also intends that you will turn and encourage the body of Christ with that thing. Help your brothers and sisters to hold on to Christ more tightly. So, so share testimonies about God with the church. It's a big part of what the church is, is here for, not only to strengthen you spiritually with the truth about Jesus in the Bible, but, but also with personal on-the-ground testimony that the gospel really is true. As we close, look at the final note in our passage, verse 28. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Christians need time with one another, right? You, you need time with fellow disciples of Christ. As verse 27 says, you need to be gathered with the church. But why would we not want to be with all of these things that God provides to us through this assembly? He gives us testimonies about himself. He gives us accountability, and he gives us spiritual strengthening, all of this so that our grip on Christ can, can be more tight. Let's pray together.